Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. And we're into extra time! Kia ora and welcome to Extra Time. I'm Clay Wilson. Well, winter might be closing in, but Kiwi cricket fans are just getting warmed up ahead of a big few weeks for the Black Caps. Test matches against England in England are always highly anticipated. And two of them, the first starting next week, represent the New Zealand side's return to action after a two-month hiatus. More than that though, the fixtures provide a seemingly perfect lead-in to next month's main event. The World Test Championship final also being played in England pits the Black Caps against India, meaning the title decider in the inaugural edition of the competition will involve the world's top two ranked Test nations. Here's a few thoughts from New Zealand captain Kane Williamson on what lies ahead for the team. You know, we always know how tough the challenge is coming over here and, and playing against England in their own backyard. But I know all the players are really excited at, at that challenge. And then that carrot at the end, which uh, the Test Championship final, which, you know, the focus will be absolutely one game at a time. But um, I suppose having a, a different opposition playing in a, a neutral country, you know, after two years of trying to qualify for that is, is an exciting prospect. And joining me now to discuss the Black Caps prospects over the next month are former Black Cap Peter McGlashan, current White Ferns Susie Bates and Stuff senior cricket writer Mark Ginty. Well Mark, coming to you first, it feels like a long time since that home summer wrapped up for the Black Caps, a very successful one it was. They've had a bit of a break since some of the squad have had those training camps in Lincoln. Of course we had the IPL and some players involved there and everything that happened with the postponement of that. It feels a bit disjointed in some ways. What have you made of the way the Black Caps are leading into this tour? It was very hard to get a read on it, Clay, isn't it? In, in terms of players coming from all parts of the globe, um, the IPL, the training in the depths of winter at Lincoln, um, even though it sounded like it was um, reasonably English-like conditions. So we, we won't really know until the first day of that test next week. I think in the past it's shown that bubble preparation, so to speak, as, as the West Indies had last year, has, has actually worked out reasonably well. They, they came out and shocked England in that first test of last year at home. So um, I don't think it's a poor preparation. It's a, it's a unique one, you could say. But um, I think the fact that Kane Williamson and Cole Jameson and Mitchell Santner, the three IPL players, have managed to link up with the team and they're all together. So it's, it's not, in terms of cricket, practice or match practice is not a massive build-up, but I still think they'll be probably as, as well prepared as they could be. Susie, what do you think? I mean, those training camps in Lincoln seemed pretty specific, using the Duke ball, tailoring the pitches to replicate English conditions, and I guess most of the guys that are coming from the IPL are pretty experienced guys anyway, have played in England before, so do you think it's going to have much impact, the fact that they've had this bit of a, an up-and-down preparation? I think we're never... You've come off a winter and, and not a summer. It's always tough as a touring team. But, yeah, back in the day when um, and when I first started, you were indoors at Lincoln and now with the outdoor marquees and grass wickets in um, Mount Monganui and Lincoln, it makes a real difference to going over to an English summer. So they'll be well prepared. I think the weather 
in Southampton. I've spent quite a bit of time in Southampton, and it's usually sunnier down there than the rest of the country, but they've had a lot of rain, so that may impact just how many overs the bowlers have been able to get on grass. But they'll be doing everything to prepare, and yeah, like Mark said, we'll see how they're tracking come Wednesday. Pete, what are you expecting, given what we've seen in, in the lead-up? And I guess, you know, we've had a bit of weather over there already, so their preparation hasn't been even great for this inter-squad game. So what are you expecting, I suppose, from that first test, Stephen? Well, uh, as he's mentioned, our New Zealand teams often struggle at the start of a season, be it a, a start of a season at home or, or a start of a winter tour overseas. And um, the New Zealand team will be really wanting to, to do well in these first two tests because of the unusual neutral venue for the Test Championship against India. They'll be without Trent Bolt, obviously, who's remaining behind, and they've all come from different places, and it's been a while since they've played red ball cricket. So we don't really know what to expect in the first one, but it's a big occasion. I'm really hopeful you know, guys like BJ Watling can finish on a high um, because there'll be lots of individual things that the team want to play for, even if you know it really is a bit of a dress rehearsal. There's been a bit of talk about the makeup of the teams for this inter-squad game. Mark, I know you're across all this kind of stuff, especially around Devon Conway opening alongside Tom Latham and perhaps a couple of other combinations. Can we read much into that in terms of, I guess, the main event, which is that World Test Championship final? Well, I think you have to. Devon Conway and, and Tom Latham combined at Lincoln in an open wicket practice, which may have been a small signal. And then I think um, overnight, them opening together and putting on 100, no less against Tim Southey, Neil Wagner and Jacob Duffy. I, I think that's as good a signal as any that Devon Conway's going to open. It's not as familiar position. He's a number three in first-class cricket, but... I do think Gary Stead and, and company realise that Devon Conway is just too good to leave out at this point on what he's done in domestic and international white ball cricket. And a half century against Saudi Wagner and company is, a, is you know probably as good as preparation as any um, to show that he's ready. So obviously another step up against Broad and uh, Anderson with the new, new Jukes ball at Lords. But I think he, he's a lock in now to open. I mean, Will Young, the other contender, is coming off two successive centuries for Durham. But I think Conway's the man. And and then in terms of the makeup of the team, that leaves number seven, the all-rounder position, is probably the only one under question. And there's up to four contenders for that. Um, De Grandholm, Dale Mitchell as the pace bowling all-rounder if they go that way, or if they'll go for spin, Mitchell Santner and maybe Rutch and Ravindra as the wild card. So, I guess that's what stands out to me. You mentioned there a couple of times about the options they have and the form the guys that may not even make the team are in. Um, Susie, you've watched a lot of the team over the home summer from the commentary box as well. Is that something that stood out to you as well, just the depth they have in, you know, the way that these guys are being pushed in the battle that we might have had in the past for these selection decisions? Yeah, absolutely. As soon as someone was given an opportunity, they seem to take it and score runs, which makes it really difficult to leave them out. And you mentioned the two names there, Conway and Young, and I'm sure Gary Stead's desperate to get both of those guys in the team. And we talked about it all summer, that you just couldn't see leaving Conway out out of New Zealand side the way he was playing and um, like Mark said that opening spot looks like where there's a gap and a big decision around the all-rounders but there's just so much depth and I think that's what makes this Black Caps team so strong is that they're competing for positions even though the Test Match team has been reasonably settled in the last couple of years there's still a couple of spots that are up for grabs. Peter, is that, have you noticed that as well? I mean I guess even going back to your playing days where Perhaps there may not have been that kind of thing around tour like this, that competition. The guys sort of in the second tier really pushing? Yeah, if you go back a decade, um, you know, to compete on the international level, we really needed our rock stars to turn up. 
Uh, and whenever we lost a couple of those, the team really struggled uh, to compete. Whereas we've got depth across almost every position, uh, even BJ Watling, you know, you do feel for Tom Blindell not being able to push his way in from opening because he's done everything that's been asked of him. But the reality is he's only a couple of tests away from basically becoming New Zealand's next test wicketkeeper batsman. So across the board, there's a huge amount of depth. So it's really good signs. And it's not just in this format, which is the wonderful thing about the state of the game at the moment. You know, with them holding the, the ODI um, top ranking as well, it shows there's a huge wealth of talent in the men's game at the moment. What do you make of these England tests and where they sit as part of this tour? When they got announced, there was a lot of talk about them being sort of the perfect preparation, if you will, for the Test Championship final. But of course, England tests away against England. You know, they have their own kind of prestige. So so how do you expect the team to approach that in terms of obviously trying to perform and do well in these games? But, you know, the ultimate carrot is that, that final at the end. Yeah, well, this is a team that's, for the last four or five years, has set its own standards regardless of who it's playing or where it's playing and, uh, and you know, the number of people that turn up to watch. And, and having a game at Lords is always special. We've only had the luxury of that a couple of times in T20s, but to play a Test match at Lords is the ultimate, um, right through from the dining experience all the way through to, you know, where you get to watch the game from. Um, and so that will always be special for these guys. As I mentioned, they've got a couple of guys that they want to give a good last performance, and it's just wonderful preparation. Um, you're looking at the matchups of Williamson and Coley to come in that Test Championship final, and you know Coley doesn't have a good record in England, um, and and he doesn't have a good record against New Zealand. So New Zealand really want to use these next two Tests as a, as a way of kind of refining strategy against playing against the best. Mark, that second test, do you expect that they might try and play their top 11? I mean, conditions are going to be different between the the venue for that and and Southampton, but do you expect that they'll want to do that at least once before they go into this final? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It it is a tricky balancing act with three tests and and quite a short space of time and and the bowlers with not a lot of overs in their legs, so to speak. So um, certainly with Trent Bolt, I think we heard during the week from Gary Stead that he's looking to fly out um, this week after reuniting with his family. He, he's going to be there in time for the second test, so you definitely want to get Trent Bolt out there. And With Bolt in the team, and I'd say Conway's an opening, it could well be the strongest Test eleven New Zealand's ever put out, just purely on world-class players, the number of world-class players they've got, and the, and the depth we talked about before. So that will be a really important dress rehearsal, and then it's a, a quick four-day backup into that final against India. So I guess the only question marks for me talking about England are, are New Zealand's record in England, and particularly at Lords. They've won just one test there over about 90 years. So in 1999, they won mm. that series memorably. So New Zealand's record against the big teams away from home still is, is the question mark, particularly we remember Australia. They went over there and got roundly beaten. And in England, their last visit in 2015, they lost the first test at Lords and then came back and won at Headingley, which was quite a significant breakthrough in, in that regard in terms of the psychology of winning in England so certainly you want to see them do well against England and, and the hosts have a lot of frontliners out the IPL guys so it's a it's a real opportunity to really you know, get a, a jump start. Susie I'm sure you know well what it's like to play against England it's probably not going to be hard for those guys to be motivated for those games isn't it I mean despite the fact that they've got that that final at the end that they're going to be you know having one eye on as well. Yeah absolutely England and England is one of the biggest challenges and um, the Barmy Army as well. Hopefully um, they can get to a few games and it's just the atmosphere that's created. They 
tend to turn up to cricket matches and they love supporting the English side and we've had some real competitive battles against England in the in the last year. So look, the Black Caps, they'll just be excited to be playing again and it's been an interesting couple of years but as soon as they get out in those test whites um, when you're playing England, the motivation is not hard to find. So I'm excited to watch, although sometimes it's um, sleepless nights when they're playing over that side of the world. So we'll see how we go. Um just to touch on India, our first look at India ahead of next month's final. We're looking at English conditions, and some people say, well, English conditions, that gives New Zealand the edge. But we saw the success India had in Australia. They're the world's number one ranked team. Yeah, well, I mean, the challenge for them is, uh, like us, they're coming off a lot of short-form cricket. Um, and they're just looking at their schedule. I think they've got two weeks of quarantine in Mumbai and then 10 days in, in uh, England as well. So they're going to be chomping at the bit to get out and start training and working together as a side. I think they've had a couple of injury worries, I think potentially an injury to the wicketkeeper. So uh, you never really know. Um, they'll have, uh, I'm sure they'll have a, a good fan base um, interested in, in the game that's going on. We've got the challenges of the crowds being limited over there um, and obviously in the middle of a COVID outbreak. So there is so many, um, I guess, uncontrollables in, in this series and particularly in that one match. I think, I'm not sure, have they confirmed whether it could go to a sixth day as well if it's a draw? Um, there's I'm all sure. sorts of random random things like that, which, um, you know, as we saw in the, the one-day cricket World Cup where a game took two days to finish, we may well have a situation where this five-day test goes into a sixth day. Hey, I'll just to jump in, I believe that it can go to a sixth day, but I think only if there's rain, which I guess on current form you probably think that is pretty likely to happen. So, <laughs> pretty short odds um, at this point. <laughs> that's right, yeah. So a test going to a sixth day would be, be quite something. But I, I just think also in terms of the pitch at Southampton, um, given it's an ICC-controlled match, they will have a, a big say over the preparation as they did at the World Cup, I'm guessing. And as we saw at the World Cup, we were expecting, well, some were expecting very flat wickets and high-scoring matches, and it turned out to be uh, you know, tilted in favour of the bowlers and particularly helped New Zealand, uh, particularly later in the tournament in that semi-final against India. So the toss might be pretty important. Um, rain will come into play, but certainly you'd think it would be in New Zealand's favour, the conditions, and, and India, like you say, are having that lengthy build-up with not a lot of match practice either. So certainly it's advantage New Zealand in, in terms of build-up there. Experience appears to be the only factor counting against New Zealand driver Scott McLaughlin in Monday morning's Indianapolis 500. The three-time Australian Supercars champion makes his first appearance in the race after shifting to IndyCars this year. The Indy 500 is part of the Triple Crown of Motorsport, which includes the Monaco Formula One Grand Prix and the 24 Hours of Le Mans. New Zealand's Scott Dixon, the 2008 champion, is on pole for his 19th race at the Brickyard. McLaughlin says it's an exciting time. It's amazing that we have two New Zealand drivers from a very small country um, battling for one of the world's biggest prizes in any sport. Not only us, but you've got 15 to 20 odd Kiwi personnel throughout the paddock that are working on our cars or working on other people's cars that we're competing against, which is amazing. And we're going to get together as a like a country or like all the all the people that are from New Zealand. We're going to get a photo and sort of start a bit of a tradition, which would be quite cool. But I think for New Zealand, I think it's just exciting. You know, we're a small country. They always punch as well above our weight. It's so cool that Scotty obviously is a legend and so fast this weekend, he's going to be hard to beat. Um, and then I'm going to try and come through and try and beat him and maybe make it a one-two. So he'll finish second, I'll finish first. 
when you were younger, obviously, you had some dreams of racing certain places, perhaps, you know, Monaco or whatever, but this is America's greatest race. How do you put this into your dreams, perhaps, of uh, when you were younger? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I guess aspirations are always supercars, and, and I can blame Murph for that, but at the same time, there was those little kid ones where you saw Scotty Dixon winning the Indy 500 in 2008 and, you know, the championships he won through the years and, you know, even earlier than that in 2003 with Ganassi and he was really an icon over here very early. So the Indy 500 was something that was always a staple event that I'd love to be a part of, but I never thought I'd get the opportunity. I just, especially when I had the touring car, you know, aspirations and normally the touring car swapped to an Indy car doesn't really work. So it was certainly a... As a kid growing up, idolised the race, but now to be a part of it certainly is not a dream come true. It's just like a, it's, I feel very lucky and privileged because I've been able to achieve my dreams in Australia and now I've been able to come across and, and be a part of, like you said, the biggest race in America. Uh, I think Alexander Rossi was the last rookie to win there at the Brickyard. So, you know, you obviously feel that um, you can be a contender. There's no reason why I can't be, you know, I feel, you know, that probably the only thing that I'm going to lack is obviously is experience, but crazy things have happened. I think I, I can put myself in the position to be somewhere near the front um, with strategy and with some passing. I think our car's fast enough to come through the field a little bit initially, but then I think we're also fast enough to be up the front and sustain that and, and save the fuel when we need to and all that sort of stuff. So I've got a lot to learn um, and, and, and learn about this race and I'll learn across the day. But if I back my ability to get to the front and I have the chance to win, I, I feel like I can definitely grab a hold of that. The last four winners, I think they started uh, in the top four on the grid. So um, you're a little bit of a disadvantage there. But as, as you said, you know, anything can happen in racing. And I suppose just stay out of trouble and, and remain a contender as long as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in 2019, we look back at, you know, Rossi himself, he actually, Alex Rossi, he actually, uh, he started 32nd and he was within half a second of the lead at the end of the race, you know, and you can be in positions to win the race uh, from anywhere on the grid. It just, things have got to fall your way. Sometimes you, know, you get a lucky yellow, sometimes you get a bad yellow or, you know, strategy doesn't quite work out, but you, know, you do need things to work your way. It's very much like Bathurst. It's just all about buying that ticket to the last stint and being there and, you know, I know my team has made some really good strategy calls this year and has got us up the front. You know, we can we can be right there if we, we get it right on the day. Um, and, and like I said, we have the pace to be able to sustain that. That's Scott McLaughlin talking to Barry Guy. For some Kiwi ferns, family is coming before footy during the COVID-19 pandemic. Captain and mother of two, Crystal Rota, says her teammates have concerns about attending the Rugby League World Cup in England and she isn't sure who can or will commit to the Pinnacle event in November. The challenges the women face to play at the top level have been exacerbated by COVID-19 and Rota says players' priorities are changing. We sort of aren't full-time professional athletes. You know, we still have day-to-day jobs that we need to take leave from and you know, we have children that we need to sort out before we go away. And especially personally for myself, um, you know, I have a daughter that's medically dependent and she's had a kidney transplant. And so anytime I leave her, whether it's for a day or potentially a month, um, you know, it's a bit scary. So with World Cup being so far away, I'm, you know, worried obviously about being stuck there or, you know, things being held up with, you know, having to quarantine and, you know, all those things that 
uncertain or a bit of a, a challenge for myself to commit to something as such, not knowing what could potentially happen. And a few people are saying that the fact that this is a World Cup should be enough to sort of get players to commit and to be motivated. But is it really that easy? Oh, no, definitely not. <laughs> I mean, if we were full-time professionals, you know, that got paid a, a decent salary package, um, you know, or a contract that was uh, long-term that covered all these uncertainties, then, yeah, definitely, I guess it would be that easy. You know, and also being able to take your families and if, if there was no COVID around. But unfortunately, it's not that easy because I've known in the past people having to actually leave their job to make a commitment as such. So, you know, although it is a World Cup, people's lives don't re- revolve around a World Cup. And will you be going? Well, I'm hoping to, yes, definitely. Um, You know, with some uncertainty about whether it's actually happening at the moment that it's sort of got the green light but just never know with COVID and there's still uncertainty in different areas um, around the travel so still need to be some clarity around certain things and for myself my biggest issue is obviously my children and leaving them behind so another thing is there's the NRLW um, prior to the World Cup so you know if girls have to take a couple of months off to play NRLW and then also take another duration off for the World Cup. You know, that's a long, long time away from home. And having missed out on that 2008, getting to play in that World Cup, does that motivate you a bit more to get to as many World Cups as you can? Yeah, definitely. You know, missing out on something fuels the fire for you to want to compete in the next one. But I knew back at that time that, you know, body kind of wasn't as important to me because I, you know, had a lot of things going on in my personal life. So it wasn't as important as it is to me now, I guess. Has there been a turning point for you where footy has become sort of that more important? I guess i just become more passionate about it. I started to enjoy it a lot more and after mum passed away, you know, then I had a daughter who, who was born, um, you know, with a medical condition and footy, I guess, became my outlet and space for me to be around friends and training every week and, you know, on the weekends hitting it out on the field. So, yeah, my passion sort of grew a bit more after, you know, two massive incidents in my life, I guess. Kiwi Fern Crystal Rota there, speaking with Felicity Reid. Anton Down Jenkins will be the lone New Zealand diver at the Tokyo Olympics, and he's using his new platform to inspire those in the LGBTQ community. The 21-year-old is the first male Kiwi diver in nearly 40 years to go to the Games. Down Jenkins turned heads at the Diving World Cup last month, recording New Zealand's best ever finish with a 10th place in the 3-metre springboard. Based in the United States at North Carolina University, the Wellingtonian tells Felicity Reid it hasn't been easy making a name for himself in diving, but he wants to change that. I feel like there were definitely a few surprise faces at the World Cup because I don't have as much international experience as a lot of other divers. I haven't competed internationally a whole bunch to the point where people would see me and be like, oh, that's the guy from New Zealand. So hopefully now people might recognise my name, maybe recognise my face or my diving, which would be awesome. And I understand you contracted COVID-19 last year. What was that experience like? 
wasn't fun. Definitely threw a spanner in the works in terms of my training. I had to sit out for a few weeks, quarantine. I self, I had to self-isolate. But I'm really lucky in the athletic department here at the University of North Carolina. They were there to help me every step of the way. In terms of my health, it definitely pushed me back a few steps just because of the effect that I noticed it did have on my respiratory system. Like coming back into training, I had to take it really, really slowly. I had to be really careful because knowing that my body had gone through reacting to COVID, I didn't know how in turn my body would react with getting back to such intense training. It was definitely a learning process for me and my coach to see what I could do, what felt like too much, how I can get back to that competitive level without hurting or injuring myself. I understand you want to be a role model for the LGBTQ plus community. Why is that mm-hmm. so important to you? There isn't too much LGBT representation in sport, especially in New Zealand. I think for a lot of people growing up coming to terms with their sexuality or their sexual identity, it can be really difficult and you can feel quite isolated, you know. And I think I got really lucky because of the LGBT representation that there has been in diving in terms of Matthew Mitchum who won gold in Beijing and Tom Daly who is like multi-Olympic medalist world champion proved to me that regardless of my sexual orientation or sexual identity that I can perform at the highest level of sport. And as your career takes off it's giving you a different platform and do you think that's now even more important for you to be vocal about this and showing in the same way that Matthew and Tom did for you? Absolutely, and I think that's one of the whole reasons that I'm doing it, because going to the Olympics does give me a bit of a platform. It may not be huge, but it doesn't make sense in my mind not to use it. If someone's seeing it and is gaining something valuable from it, then that makes it absolutely worthwhile. And that was Olympic diver Anton Down Jenkins. That brings us to the end of Extra Time. My thanks to Peter McGlashan, Susie Bates and Mark Genty. Extra Time is available every Friday from about 4pm. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Radio Public, iHeartRadio and of course at rnz.co.nz. Give us a rating if you would. That helps a whole lot and means other listeners can find us much more easily. I'm Clay Wilson. Kakite anō. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.